I'm uh, very happy to share with you the uh, call of worship today, which happens to be one of my favorite verses. Uh, if everyone could turn in their pew Bibles to Psalm 133, that can be found on page 574. Again, Psalm 133. I'm going to be reading from a different version uh, because that's what I've been reading from, so I do apologize for any differences. Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments. As the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life evermore. Amen. Today's uh, New Testament reading is in um, Acts 4, uh, verse 32 to 35. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work within them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, bought the money from the sales, and put it on the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Uh, Let's see. First John, uh, one one to uh, two verse two. That was which, or that was, from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands, have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared; we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim, proclaim to you the eternal life which was with our Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you, God, his light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we also have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us for our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you and so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the, with the Father, Jesus Christ, 
the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the, of the, of the whole world. Today, Gospel's reading is found on John 20, 19 through 31, may be found in your pew Bibles, um, pages 1001, and I will be reading from the New King James Version. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the prints of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the door being shut. And stood in the midst of them and said, Peace to you. Then he, then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas, said, and, and, and Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly Jesus did many other, th- other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Oh, you're lying now. (laughs) Two people? All right, let's see them high. Big Bang Theory fans. I knew it. All right, yeah, I'm one of them. Amazing show. Any of you see the one where uh, Sheldon can't quite come to terms with magic? Anyway. We'll move on. It comes to Thomas, you see. What is said to Sheldon when he can't figure out the magic trick is, believe in magic, you muggle. That's the quote from the show. And there is something about this, something about our hearts which does not want to believe. There's something about us Something about our limitations, something about our incapacity to comprehend, to be, to be magical or to comprehend what's going on, that when we're confronted with the resurrection, it's a very difficult thing. 
Now, you know, just as uh, it took a minute for all of us to come around to admit we were uh, Big Bang Theory fans, it may take you a minute to admit that. I don't know. I'm trying to do that freely before you. There's always doubt. And Thomas is like most of us. Well, uh, I'm going to need to know a little bit more, he says. And eight days later, Jesus invites him to see a bit more. Now, I think Jesus is a little disappointed. At least it comes off that way in the tone of the text. A little disappointed. Blessed are those who have believed and not seen. Now, that's kind of encouraging for us because that's you and I. We haven't had the privilege of a three-year journey in person with Christ. We were not at Golgotha. We did not feel the earth shake or see the sky go dark. We did not see the sealed tomb. We did not experience the upper room. We weren't there for his appearances or his appearances as relayed by others who had seen him. And we weren't there to put our fingers in his hands or our fingers in his side. We were not there. But if we can come to terms with the resurrection, there's an amazing life after. An amazing life after. We'll start today where Victor was reading in John and the gospel reading for today, John 20. So if you uh, were reading along, find that passage again and put your finger there and, and let's, let's just recount this and revel in it for a moment. One of the most notable features of verse 19 and 20 is we find that the disciples are gathered, doors are locked, and they're fearful already for the repercussions that are going to come from the empty tomb or word of it. Recall that the tomb has been sealed. What this likely looks like is some sort of wire or string sealed with wax or some other material that would cling to rock and stamped with the seal of Caesar. A guard has been placed there, and yet the tomb is empty. The resurrection has taken place, and the cover-ups have begun, and the followers of Christ are fearful now for the repercussions. And Jesus comes and stands among them. I don't see any record that they were startled or surprised or aware that he came to stand among them, but he appears to them. And like heavenly messengers before, his word to them in the face of what must be terror is, don't be afraid. Peace be with you. He's not talking about any peace. He's talking about his peace. The kind of peace that surpasses 
all of our thinking, all of our instinct, all of our determinations, all of our doings. It's the kind of peace that only comes as a gift. It's the kind of peace that came to them as he stood in their midst and opened his robe and spread out his hands and reminded them of what had taken place just a few days before. When they realized who it was, they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I want to call your mind back to a story in Genesis where God takes clay and forms it into a human. And he kneels over this image of a human in clay and breathes on it or breathes into it the breath of life and it becomes a living soul a living being. When Jesus breathes on the disciples in the upper room, he is creating in them a new life. This is not the old life. This is not life pre-resurrection. This is life post-resurrection. And the spirit, and this is a wonderful play on words, When Adam is innervated at the beginning of time, he's innervated by the breath of life, and the breath is literally moving air. It's translated in the Greek spirit also. It's the energy of life. And now in the New Testament, Jesus breathes on them, and this time they aren't innervated to physical life with the breath of life. They're innervated to spiritual life with the giving of the Holy Spirit in a personal and profound way. Kissed to life by God in the beginning, they are now kissed to life by His Son in the Spirit, and life will never be the same. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. Now that's an interesting, interesting line, isn't it? Especially in light of Jesus' earlier words when he says, if you would be forgiven, you must forgive. I don't think the latter undoes the former. I think rather what this speaks to is a new kind of authority. In the spirit, you are going to release the prisoners, you're going to carry on the work of Christ who proclaims freedom, right? To the slaves, releasing the prisoners and so forth, speaking good news, hope, injecting humanity with something new. This is what the prophet said. And so there's a new kind of authority now given in the spirit. Thomas, known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. I don't know if these guys were practical jokers. 
I know that many of you like to do that. You have to be careful, I guess, in today's world not to go too far with it, but it is good college humor anyway to play a few practical jokes, isn't it? To disassemble the dean's Volkswagen and reassemble it in the lobby of the dorm. (laughs) Perfectly innocent prank. Maybe they thought it was a practical joke. Maybe they hadn't really learned the unity that Christ had called them to. Maybe they weren't in tune with the buzz, with the things that were happening around them. I don't know. But when the disciples told Didymus, we've seen the Lord, he said to them, unless I see the nail marks and put my finger where the nails are and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. I like that statement, I will not believe. Because it is the statement that so many in today's world could make. I will not believe. We have predetermined what's possible and not. And so the question comes to us today, can we believe that God's breath on us can happen still? That we can be innervated to a new life in spirit? Can we believe that in that same spirit we can do the works that Christ called us to do? It's a huge leap of faith. It's a real challenge. And most of us are determined from the onset not to believe. It feels like the safest place to be. And yet Jesus commends those who have seen and not seen and believed. A week later, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, and though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. I like this new Jesus. He just kind of... This spiritual body of his, he's got form. The uh, scars can be felt. The holes in his hands can be felt. He's got form, but the walls aren't stopping him. He's just showing up. Isn't that cool? I guess you'll just have to see that episode, but we all need to believe in magic, don't we? Is that the wrong word? You're just not okay with that word, I think, right? Bad connotations, and we're just not sure when the passive. If a man had a withered hand, and Jesus touched that hand and it became whole, what's the difference between that when we call it a miracle and that if we called it magic? Oh, so the hand now that appears when Jesus touches the hand is a trick. Well, I'm just suggesting to you that we can make a differentiation between the magic shows of today, which are illusion, and something that's deep. But C.S. Lewis, in his writings, uses this word. Have you read the Chronicles of Narnia? We really have to find out what you're doing with your time. The Chronicles of Narnia are a classic written for children, but ironically speak to adults just as powerfully. And in this allegory that's told over in different seven different books, C.S. Lewis 
speaks in the most famous one, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, of the coming of Christ, his crucifixion, and his resurrection, and the power that that brings to a land. But it's all done in allegory. And the language he uses to describe the miracle of what Aslan does, the lion who represents Christ, is magic. It's not an illusion, it's real. So in the sense that we could uh, not see magic as something contrived, something false, something that is designed to be an illusion or part of a Vegas show, um, the coin doesn't really disappear. It's hidden from view or sleight of hand somewhere. Uh, I just invite you for a moment to enter enter the magic, enter the wonder, enter the miracle. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Took him a minute to get there. And Jesus says, because you've seen me, you've believed. And yet we're called, all of us, to experience this this new life, having seen, but not directly. Having experienced, but not in person. doesn't make it unreal. When Christ breathes on the disciples, the Holy Spirit is given to them and it's transmitted through time by the laying on of hands and by prayer. The Holy Spirit is present in the early church and on through the ages and through all time and present today. And the Holy Spirit invites us to be refreshed to be breathed on anew, to live a new life in Christ by the Spirit. And thus is the power of this message. When we go over to 1 John, we're going to do this in almost exactly reverse order. We find in 1, 1 through 7, a hint at the new life that's come. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, O doubter. This we proclaim concerning the Word of Life, capital W, the Word made flesh that dwelt among us. The life appeared, and we've seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light, in him is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness... We lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sins. It's that forgiveness piece. Now there's kind of a a new thing. Maybe tied to what we read before. If you forgive someone their sins, they're forgiven. If you don't, they aren't. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
Now, I don't think we have uh, anywhere close to the kind of appreciation for this passage that the first century Christians did. It was those Christians who followed Christ, those first Christians, followers of the ways, were almost entirely Jewish. And the system that they were used to was a sacrificial system in which the forgiveness of sin depended upon the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice of the lamb, and the transference of sin to that lamb. But Christ was the lamb slain once for all who took away the sin of the world. And so in this passage we have a strong, strong declaration of new life post-crucifixion, post-resurrection. No longer is there a sacrificial system. No longer will we bring a, a sin offering and a burnt offering. No longer will we carry out that system. But Jesus will be our high priest and we will confess our sins and he will forgive us our sins because he's faithful and he's just and he's true. He's resurrected and he's breathed on us spirit power and conviction. We'll know what we need to confess. I used to, when I was a child, have a very forensic model of the judgment and very, um, well, it was a very scary sort of thing. And I had come across the belief, I don't know if my parents believed it or if it was just something in documents they read or something I inferred, but the idea was that if I'd had any unconfessed sin in my life and Christ came, I wouldn't be ready. Any of you come across that kind of theology? I would suggest to you today that if you can't remember it, it's probably not your greatest problem. (laughs) I would suggest to you that the one who is gracious and just to forgive us our sins can take a confession that includes a confession of our blindness to our sins, our forgetfulness of the ways in which we have violated others and God. I don't want to see you awake, not that I would, but I don't want to hear that you've been awake at 2 a.m. Trying to, trying to remember the sin you forgot. I want to know that you're awake at 2 a.m. because you've remembered the grace that's yours and you're celebrating it with the God who is the love of your life. So already we have new life, life after, something tremendous happening in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then he says, and here's a little clue for you. If we've claimed we've not, if we claim we've not sinned, we've made him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the one who knows what it's like to be human. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the entire world. For God has reconciled the world to himself in Christ. It is a new era. Already, a week after the resurrection, 
the church and the disciples, the people of God, the world has entered into life after. And it just keeps going. In Acts, very well-known passage in Acts chapter 4, and something that gives us pause when we think about how to structure our lives socially. Knowing all of the failures of the utopias of the present and previous ages. We read in Acts 4, 32 to 35, the following. All of the believers were in were one in heart and mind. It was unity. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. What a time to be alive in the early church. Now, I don't want you to go sell your home and bring me the proceeds, because in a year I'll be putting you on the handout list because you will have lost the way to care for yourself. But we do have many ways of distributing and sharing amongst ourselves for the common good. And whether they were thinking that Christ was coming back so soon that they didn't need their property or or what, I can't be sure. But there was unity among them and the rich and the poor were not distinguished And there was fellowship, and there was grace, and there was power, and there was spirit. Which brings us back to Psalm 133. And Psalm 133 says something really beautiful and odd too. The beautiful part, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. That should get an amen. Yeah, I I can testify to that, how good it is, and what a blessed church this is, Santa Clarita, for overwhelmingly we experience uh, the unity that's described in these places, and we're all blessed by that. But then it gets odd for us because we can't relate to the next part. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe, and I just want to say gross. (laughs) I don't care what you flavor olive oil with. If you've poured enough on it that it's saturated my hair and gone down what stubble I might have and dripped all over my clothes, that's a dry cleaning bill that I just don't know how to... I don't think we're ever going to recover these robes, frankly. And, and I don't like that oily feel all over myself. But this isn't what the passage is talking about. It's not talking about getting sloppy. Aaron is not just dripped on or smeared. Aaron is doused in fragrant oils. His moment of consecration, his ordination is meant to symbolize the complete devotion, 
that he will bring to his office and to his cause. So the psalmist isn't celebrating ruined garments or the need for a towel on the head. The psalmist is celebrating the totality and completeness of one's consecration, dedication. And then there's another metaphor that we're not used to either. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Those are quite a distance apart, actually. Hermon is often covered in snow even in the summer times. Zion is hot, hot, hot in the summer. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. The metaphor of Mount Hermon is one of precipitation, one of water in a desert. Not only bringing water to quench thirst, but water to quench the thirst of a land. And where there's water, there's plant life and food. It's about productivity. Out of this blessing, out of this consecration comes this multiplication, this productivity, this blessing. Life after is an amazing thing. And God can open our eyes to it in so many ways. I look at the world and I see increasing hostility to Christianity, greater ignorance and misunderstanding about religion and its role in society. I have concerns. I look at the moral uh, compass, if you will, uh, of people portrayed in media and those that we admire and I'm not sure there is one. I think there's lots of things that we could look at in our our culture and our society and be suspicious of or be concerned about. And yet I will tell you, in the very midst of us, God continues to preach. What does it say? Jesus said, if you don't praise me, the what? Rocks will cry out. This life after continues. It keeps going. Whether we know it or not, whether we're aware of it or not. I had a wonderful experience last night. My eyes were open to something that I hadn't really seen before or thought of in this exact way. I had the privilege of going to Christian Ministries training event with Linda at Pasadena and and We had different tracks, and I got some great uh, inspiration and information there. The day was wrapping up, and my wife texted me and said, Bloomstead is at the fill tonight. Do you want to go? Now, that's code. Bloomstead means Herbert Bloomstead, who is a well-known conductor. And Phil means Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra at Walt Disney Concert Hall. And I texted back, yes, would love to do that. So we went. It was Beethoven's Misa Solemnis. I had never heard the work in its entirety before. But it was Beethoven's 
favorite work of his own, even though he never heard it in its totality in in his lifetime. Beethoven was a very interesting person, raised Catholic. He was rather a child of the Enlightenment. And of course, the Napoleonic thing was going on about this time. So Beethoven ended up asserting himself more in terms of that Enlightenment than in terms of Christianity and the bulk of his career. But he writes of Misa Solemnis this. It's right on the score. And I have it here in the concert notes. Let me read that to you. And of course, I have turned away from the page, and so it'll take a second. He says, from the heart, may it go to the heart. Of course, he said that in German, and I won't test your hearing with my pronunciation there. From the heart, may it go to the heart. The uh, writer of the program notes says, The grandeur of the Misi Solemnis is Beethoven's way of representing God's majesty rather than hearing it as a declaration of faith, as is most obviously expressed in the words of the Credo. We should look beyond the text to the music's invocation of a numinous God beyond our understanding. To achieve this, the music also has to reach out beyond conventional language to sounds that themselves defy our understanding. We can no more easily grasp the inner nature of this music than we can define the divinity of God himself. And so the music starts. And it struck me. I'm in a secular concert hall, in a secular place, with presumably hundreds if not thousands of people who have no present connection to Christianity. And on the words above, the translated Latin text of Misa Solemnis begins, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Lord have mercy upon us. Christ have mercy upon us. And then into the Gloria. Glory to be to God on high and peace on earth to men of goodwill. We praise thee, we bless thee. We adore thee, we glorify thee. We give thanks, we give thee thanks for thy great glory. O Lord God, O heavenly King. O God the Father Almighty, O Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son. O Lord, Lamb of God, Son of the Father, O thou who takest away the sin of the world. Have mercy upon us, receive our prayer. O thou who sittest at the right hand of the Father, have mercy on us. For thou alone art holy, thou alone art Lord, thou alone art most high. O Jesus Christ, together with the Holy Ghost, in the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. For the whole audience to see. And in the violin section is second violin head chair, Lyndon Taylor Johnson, whose father taught at La Sierra and who is a practicing Adventist. And singing in the master chorale, 120 voice choirs, Abdiel uh, Gonzalez, yes, thank you, who is the son of Miriam Gonzalez, one of our pastors in another region. 
Pasadena area, magnificent voice. And I'm sure there are others that I didn't pick out. And there were people of faith in the congregation, but the most interesting thing of all was the conductor, 85 years old and the son of a Seventh-day Adventist minister. Herbert Bloomstead is a faithful Adventist. He will not work on Friday night. And you say, wait a minute. Did he not conduct? Am I not preaching? I don't write my sermon now. I speak it. And he doesn't rehearse his orchestra on Friday night. He makes it speak. And as he conducted the sermon before us, I was struck by the profound message going out to the world. The credo was sung. Anybody know what credo means? Well, we knew you knew, Bunny. (laughs) That's practically cheating. Uh, Credo does indeed mean, I believe. The The root word of this is the same root word as credibility and credit. Credo. I believe. And so the creed comes forward, and not the one you might hear usually, but a longer, more elaborate one. I believe in one God, the Almighty Father, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God and born of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of lights, the true God of true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial to the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us, suffered under Pontius Pilate and was buried, and on the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of the Father. And he is to come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, of whose kingdom there shall be no end. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who together with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. I believe in one Catholic and apostolic church, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the remission of sins, and I expect the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now, don't let your boxers get tied in a knot there over the word Catholic. (laughs) The word Catholic simply means universal. Do you believe in the universal church of Christ? Well, I'm not going to say you're Catholic. No need to be inflammatory. There's the creed. This is declared before a people who, whether they know it or not, are hearing a declaration of God's glory, of God's grace, of God's purpose in our world. And then we hear the Sanctus. Heaven and holy is the Lord God of hosts, or Sabaoth. Heaven and earth are full of thy glory. 
Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. O Lamb of God, Agnus Dei, Agnus Dei. O Lamb of God that takest away the sins of the world, have mercy on us and grant us peace. We are living in life after. And God is at work in places we don't expect to see him or find him. And his spirit is alive and still seeking to make us alive. And the resurrection translates into something, yes, in the future, something eschatological, something that happens when Christ comes and we're resurrected to be with him. But the resurrection is the here and now as well. This being is innervated with new pneuma, new spirit, new breath, new life. And so is yours. And so as we think back with joy on this season we've come through, and we reflect on what it is that Christ has brought and the forgiveness that's ours, and the grace that's ours, and the hope we have now and into the future, and the unity and the community. Let us be faithful. Faithful to steward that community. Faithful to develop those relationships. Faithful to look for where God is working in the world and be a part of it. Faithful to experience the joy of life anew. And so, Christ Jesus, in resurrection life, by your Spirit, make all things new. In Jesus' name, amen.